Well, good morning. You guys uh, quieted down and were ready to roll before I was, so that's commendable. Thank you again for coming this morning. We're excited to continue our tour through the Bible Sunday school class that we've started. We're going to continue through our survey of the Old Testament, but this morning, if you'd bow your heads with me, let's pray before we do so. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you because it is a treasure to us, because it reveals to us who you are. And Lord, we ask this morning as we continue to look through uh, large passages of scripture, to understand um, even themes of the books that you've written for us to understand, that we would see clearly you. So we pray for your help in this, that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts, so that we might live in a way that honors and acknowledges and seeks to praise you. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to be looking at the book of Job. For those of you who have been following along in our class, though, you're probably thinking, Job? That doesn't seem to be the next in my Bible after First and Second Samuel, so why, why Job? Well, up to this point, we've been tracking through the history of God's people, from creation to the calling of Abraham to the covenantal Ten Commandments, and then the conquering of the Promised Land in Canaan, and as we saw last week, even the crowning of their king. And all of this is showing how God is sovereignly fulfilling his promise, his promise to bring a redeemer who would rescue his people from sin and death so that we could be made righteous, so that we could live with our creator forever. But it's at this point in history, during the first kings of Israel, that much of what is referred to as the wisdom literature of the Old Testament was written. This Wisdom literature category refers to Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So it's at this point we want to pause on tracing really the history of God's people, and we want to look and meditate on God's wisdom for his people. These wisdom books are likely ones that you frequent as you engage the Old Testament. We believe that it is God's world in which we live, and so we want to know how to live according to his will, his rules, and seeking that, we want to know his wisdom. But as you read through these poetic writings, you find the truth is pouring off page after page and is really applicable to your personal life. And it's because these books often deal with life's basic questions. These are issues that we all deal with in every generation. They address questions that the human race faces Generation after generation. We want to know, what does it mean to be wise? How do I avoid being a fool? How should I raise my children? What's the purpose of life? Who is God and how is it that I'm supposed to fear and relate to him? How do I praise him? And even why is there suffering? And we come back over and over again to these books because they are a bottomless wealth of knowledge, not just what we are to do, but for us to understand who God is is, which really is the entire purpose of God's revelation, is to reveal himself. And in much of scripture, we see him revealing himself through the pages of history. And it's in the wisdom and poetic books that we actually get to smell and taste the goodness of our great God. And this morning, our aim is that our affections would be shaken and stirred up as we delight in our God who is sovereign, even over the suffering of his saints. And that really is the bedrock truth of the book of Job. 
God is sovereign in the suffering of his saints. Although we don't know the author or even the precise time of when this book was written, it's near impossible to miss the message of this book. And like other wisdom literature, this book aims to answer one of life's most pressing questions, one that each of us wrestles with. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is sovereign and loving, why does he allow those who love him to suffer? Why has he allowed you, faithful Christian, to suffer? This book seeks to address this gap between our perception of the life that we live. There appears to be a difference between what we experience and what God has revealed in his word about himself. God has revealed himself as good and sovereign over all his creation. And even those who trust in him experience yet this appalling loss, life-altering sickness, and even soul-shaking anguish. Why? Our world tries to answer this basic life question with their own sort of rationale. They will say, well, God must not be in control of everything. Or they might conclude that God really doesn't care about what is good. Some will even unwittingly and heretically elevate Satan to the level of sovereign, thinking that this life is simply our experience of this equally matched battle of good versus evil. Or what you might see or hear as more prevalent in our circles is we we tend to shift the blame of why something bad is happening to us. We seek to blame or accuse something. We assume suffering must be a just punishment. And so we search, even in ourselves, for simple motives or attitudes because we think if we just repent, then we'll escape this suffering that we're experiencing. Or we assume that as we see others suffer as well. We even will generalize this with our our disclaimer claim we like to say is, uh, we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. But these are not the answers we find in the book of Job. These conclusions are either denounced as false or found to be lacking when addressing the question, why the righteous suffer? And for those of you who have experienced abrupt loss or sustained illness, you know that those answers only fuel frustration and fear. They don't actually help in the fight for faith amidst fierce fires. We need to be equipped with God's Truth. We need God's answer. We need it etched into our hearts and our minds so as the waves roar against us, we will be anchored through the storm. So if you haven't done so yet, please open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. It's in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we find the first section of our outline of the book. It's referred to commonly as the prologue, it's the starting of this story. And it's in this prologue that we find the characters are introduced and the setting is described. We find in these opening verses the main character and the historical person whom this book is titled after, Job. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 1 and following. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many 
servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Job is identified as both a righteous and wealthy man of the East. But after this brief introduction, we as the audience are swept up into heaven in an abrupt scene change. We find the Lord questioning the accuser, Satan. And the Lord brings Job to Satan's attention. As you see in verse 8 of chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Notice already the theme being displayed. It is the Lord who is initiating what is about to unfold in Job's life. The Lord is the one total sovereign authority. We see also that Satan simply does what his name means. He accuses. He says that Job only fears God because he's so abundantly blessed. But if the Lord were to remove his blessings, Job would curse God to his face. It is the Lord who gives all Job's possessions into Satan's hand, but restricts him from harming Job himself. As Satan leaves the presence of the Lord, the scene breaks back to Job on earth where we find this immense devastation befalling this servant of the Lord. Remember, Job was declared by the author and the Almighty as blameless and upright. Yet all the possessions and blessings listed in those first couple verses are lost in an instant. Messenger after messenger, speaking almost on top of each other in rapid succession, say, your oxen and donkeys, they were stolen and your servants destroyed. The fire of God fell from heaven and consumed your sheep and your servants. Your camels had been taken by thieves and they struck down your servants as well. And worst of all, your ten children are dead. A strong wind came through and blew down and knocked down the house they were all in. This is sudden and severe loss. The attacks of enemies compounded by abnormal devastations through creation is meant to be this sort of overwhelming and crushing event. But see the response of the Lord's servant, Job, starting in verse 20 of chapter 1. Scripture records, Then Job arose, and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Notice that the initial response is total trust in the Lord. The Lord is the one who alone has all authority to both give and take away, and Job's response is one of dependent reliance on him. Although we, as the audience, are privy to this throne room scene prior, Job was not. He did not know why it happened, but he knew who God was. But as we know, Job's suffering was not yet done. We as readers are lifted back up to the heavenlies for yet another conversation where the Lord initiates with the same phrase, Have you considered my servant, Job? 
Satan protests again in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Yet again, we see that while Satan complains, it is the Lord who is in total control and is calling all the shots. The Lord says what can and can't be done and when it is to be done. The Lord alone is sovereign. Although the truth may be startling, it is the only truth that stills and stabilizes the heart of a believer. The Lord is sovereign in the suffering of his saints. The scene cuts back down to Job on earth, and yet again, Job is not informed regarding these heavenly conversations. And Job was struck, Scripture says, with loathsome sores from head to toe. With no modern medicine to aid him, he restores what he, rather, he resorts to broken pieces of pottery to scrape his sores trying to relieve the pain. And in the midst of his physical suffering, Job's wife, his trusted companion for life, says to him in verse 9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Not only was his physical flesh under attack, but also the person with whom God had made him to be one flesh. Can you imagine this kind of suffering? Pain physically and personally to the utmost intensity. How would you respond? Job replies to his wife in verse 10. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now if we were to marvel... At Job, for even a moment, Job would likely have a cow. And that would be painful, so don't do that to Job. Okay? Job is a man in mourning who is being brought to the end of himself, and the only way he is able to stand is because he knows who God is. Because God has graciously revealed himself and graciously sustains his servant through suffering. Now, we might think that the story here is done. We've seen the truth depicted vividly and powerfully, but God chose for the book of Job to be 42 chapters, not just two. He knows us and gives us in his word what we need. And he knows that the way we suffer initially does not always mirror how we suffer long term. Job 1 and 2 gives us a great picture of how we should start in our suffering, but Job 3 through 37 shows the dangers we face under sustained suffering. We must not merely respond to suffering with faith in God. We need to remember and return to who God is every moment throughout our suffering. After the prologue in chapters 1 through 2, we find human wisdom on suffering in chapters 3 through 37. And it's this setup with the introduction of Job's three friends that started right at the end of chapter 2. 
His three friends listed are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And you can remember their names because the first was Eliphaz to assume, the second was Bildad advice, and the third was Zophar from the truth. It's not even funny. So hopefully those names are now etched into your memory. But in their defense, these men saw their friend suffering, and they entered in to sit with him and comfort him for an entire week without speaking a word. After that, they even sought to apply truths about who God was to their friend. And based on the details of this book, it appears that Job lived during the period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means there was no written scripture yet, that God's progressive nature of his revelation of himself had not even gotten to the point of the Mosaic Covenant where we find God's law written for his people. But these friends knew that God is sovereign and that he is just. And in their refusal to question their understanding of God's character, they instead question Job's character. Although we find their counsel to trend from bad to worse, we find these thoughts present in our own mind as we suffer. We find the spiraling despair of Job active in our own souls as we experience the pressures of a perceived perpetual pain. In chapters 3 through 37, we find a long poetic prose, a dynamic dialogue between Job and his friends as they work through understanding why Job was suffering. In general, the message of Job's three friends is that, Job, you're suffering because you have sinned. And Job's response is, no, I am innocent. For Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, God's justice was linear. He is a good judge and therefore always does what is right. If someone is in the right, he blesses them. And if they are wicked, then he punishes them. So the only reason Job could be suffering was because he acted wickedly. Job despairs to the point of despising his own life, but denies the accusations of his three friends. And in his persistence, he complains that God is either arbitrary or even unfair. And he demands that his case be brought before God himself. Job had bought into the same faulty theological framework of his friends. They think their understanding of God is great enough that they can determine why God does something, why he acts the way he does. But this was to put God in a box, to say that God operates under the definition of man's understanding of justice is to make God subordinate to that standard of justice. We need to understand that God is not an almighty robot that executes the moral code that's programmed into him. He is God. He is the sovereign creator of everything. He is good and he is just in all that he does because of who he is. Goodness is not God and justice is not God. Only the Lord, he is God. After Job's final protest in chapter 31, there is a new counselor, though, that enters the scene named Elihu. In chapters 32 through 37, he rebukes both Job's friends and Job. The friends 
for their unfounded accusations and Job for his desire to justify himself as undeserving of suffering. But Elihu presents a different and bigger view of God along with another perspective on why the righteous suffer. In chapter 36, verse 15, Elihu asserts, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He's saying, is it possible, Job, that God is teaching you something about himself through your suffering? In chapter 37, Elihu affirms God's sovereign power over all creation. And in speaking of God's authority over the weather, he references God's motives in chapter 37, verse 13. He says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, God causes it to happen. He's saying, whatever the reason may be, I don't know. But I know that he is sovereignly commanding all his creation. And we don't always get to know the why. But we do get to know the who. And that's enough for us to trust him. Then down in verse 19 of chapter 37, Elihu addresses Job's demand to understand and be exonerated. He says, teach us, Job, what we shall say to him, the Lord. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Job, how exactly does the created counsel the creator? It's impossible. We are so limited in our understanding We are finite, and God is infinite in wisdom and power. Who can know the immeasurable mind of God? As we progress through Job's honest anguish, Lihu appears as a glimmer of light. But it is drastically dwarfed by the divine interrogation that follows. The third primary section is chapter 38 through the first half of 42. If the previous portion was summarized by human wisdom on suffering, then this section would be characterized by divine wisdom on suffering. In the opening verses of chapter 38, the Lord himself enters the discussion with divine authority. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. In one of the Bible's most remarkable passages, God paints a picture of his uniquely sovereign knowledge and wisdom and power. God points to the natural world and considers the multitude of creation The seas, the stars, the ostriches, the oxen, and even the overwhelming beasts of both land and sea. And God wants to know if Job was there when he made them. Could Job command anything from God's creation? With each question, there is this sort of growing chasm in the silent answer to the relentless rhetorical questions. Well, God knows that and that, and that, but I don't. God can do that, and that, and even that, but, but I can't. Then in chapter 40, verse 2, the Lord asked Job directly, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
He who argues with God, let him answer it. To which Job responds in verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. But even after this, the Lord was not done. In the remainder of chapters 40 and 41, God continues to instruct Job about who he is. In chapter 41, in the second half of verse 10, he says, Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The greatest comfort for afflicted saints is that God is sovereign over our suffering. Because that means we can trust him in our pain. In chapter 42, the final chapter, Job makes his final confession where he sees finally clearly that God is all-powerful and all-wise. So he repents and trusts in his sovereign Lord. This epic story wraps up with the final half of chapter 42, which is really the epilogue. The Lord tells Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that they were wrong. Job was vindicated, and the Lord graciously and abundantly blesses Job with double his previous possessions and with seven sons and three daughters. What a remarkable story that Job, even though he never understood why he suffered, was able to see who God is. He is given an understanding of the knowledge of the holy. And God trusted, Job trusted in his great God. God could have clued Job into what was going on behind the scenes. He did so for us. But if Job even knew some of God's reasons, would that really have helped? Think for a minute, if God came to Job at the very beginning and said, Job, I want you to know that I'm actually the instigator of all that's about to befall you. I'm doing it to show you that I can sustain you through trial, and I want to grow your understanding of who I am, and I'm going to make sure it's even recorded for the encouragement of my people for thousands of years to come. Job probably would have responded, wow, that sounds great, but why can't we do it a different way? Why, why does it have to be me? Why, why does it have to be so hard? You see, the question of why leads to the question of why, which leads to the question of why. The question why actually doesn't help, but the answer to who provides hope. We got to see more than Job did, but only enough to see what we need. To see that God sovereignly uses the suffering of his saints to display his glorious power and wisdom in the infinite number of ways that he desires. Satan's sour face saw it. Job and his friends saw it. And it was written down so generation after generation of God's people would see it too. God is sovereign in our suffering, so trust him through it. 
As we said at the beginning, Job addresses the question, why do the righteous suffer? But it doesn't answer it directly, just as Jesus often answered the question they needed answered, not the one they asked. Rather, it teaches us that when we ask why, God answers with who. We do not always get to understand why we suffer, but we are told how we can suffer in a way that honors him. By faith in our all-good and absolutely sovereign God who works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This book is about trusting God despite the nature of our circumstances. And when we are hurting, we are tempted to ask, why? Why did God do this or why has he allowed that? But what you and I need is to see who God is and to trust in him. Christian, we often suffer. We only sometimes understand, but we can always trust in him. The book of Job is a treasure for God's children. It addresses one of life's pressing questions, One that even the world struggles to answer. And maybe you've had the question hurled at you before. If God is good and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the good suffer? But in God's wisdom, he chose to address this question in an immensely personal and palpable way. But I'm not referring to the book of Job. It's not just in Job that he addresses this, but it's rather in the grand story of redemption. God came down and took on flesh, and he's referred to as the suffering servant, the one who was guiltless, without sin, the spotless lamb who was sacrificed in the place of the guilty. You see, I think sometimes people go to scripture to interrogate God and say, If suffering is happening, then God can't exist. So you need to explain to me. You need to tell me. Why is this happening to me? Why does this happen to those I love? But you're putting yourself in the place of God. And what people need to understand is that God is not seeking to defend himself in the book of Job or in the sacrificial system. What he's looking to do is help you understand that if the righteous don't suffer, the wicked are not saved. This is God's plan of salvation, that he would send his only son to die on the cross so that those who are sinners could be made right with their creator. So when people ask you, why do good people suffer? When you experience suffering and you're not guilty, what we need to do is return again to the gospel And we need to thank God that he is sovereign in the suffering of his saints. And we too will trust in our powerful and wise Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are all wise and all powerful. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us through your spirit to retain and remember these truths. That we would insist on the gospel and applying it to our lives. That we would recognize that you are God alone. And that we are to live in a way that is pleasing in your sight. We're to live according to your word. 
and walk in the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your children to trust in you through difficulties and that your Spirit would enable us to remember these truths and to cling to you when we feel broken and beaten down, knowing that you are doing something for the good of your people and for the greatness of your glorious name. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.